Hi, this is Ikim. Hi, this is Katrina. Welcome to High Impact Coffee Hour, where you can listen to two psychology nerds chat with academics about philosophy, feminism, and science. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of High Impact Coffee Hour. So, my name is Katrina. And this is Ikim. Hello, I'm Marihane. And we're super excited to have you on as a guest. So, if you could tell us a bit about your background, where you're at right now, what you're studying. All of that. Um, so I am a PhD student at the University of Manchester studying pain perception. So a bit of neuroscience psychology makes pain perception. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Ikan? Yeah, and just for context, um, Ariane and I are in the same um, lab. So um, it's a lab where it's not my primary like uh, lab with my primary supervisor, Simona. Um, it's just where I attend lab meetings and I consider Deborah to be a mentor as well. So um, yeah, um, and we sort of like, we have a similar career trajectory in that both we both studied stress before coming into like the pain research, um, which I think is pretty cool. And so I guess the first question to introduce us to everything was, uh, what was your first entry point to research as a whole? Um, I don't really know exactly how it all started. I guess when I was in uni, I've always been quite like very curious about everything. So I was always kind of asking questions and being like, okay, this is really interesting. I want to know more. And then you always find yourself in the situation where, well, there is no answer yet. Um, it kind of is something that gets you hooked. You want to know the answers. So if it's not available, you have to go and find it. And I think it just started like that when I was doing my undergrad and I just kind of went a bit like, okay, this is, this is something I would really like to do as a living. So that's when I decided that I was going to do an MRES and start getting into research. My, before going to my MRES, I did, did, I did an internship as a research assistant in the Basque Country. So that was also kind of getting a bit of hands-on experience and seeing how it is. Um, and it was just kind of a very progressive thing. I never had an idea as a child of I want to be a researcher. It was just kind of a progressive entry towards it. That makes a lot of sense. And I think I relate to that a lot that I never really thought, oh, I want to be a researcher. or That's the thing that <laughs> I'm really interested in. But you sort of just step your feet into it and then realize, oh, I can combine my love for psychology with research and and answering these questions that I have about whatever it may be. Yeah, I think also research taps into a lot of like the more fundamental human desire to question things and to try things out and to like find answers. And I really like that aspect about research, but I feel like it's not necessarily a research specific thing. I think all humans share those things to a different degree, but I think maybe for researchers, this is sort of more like it's closer to our identities to do this. Um, and maybe that's why we go into research. And also I think practically speaking, I don't know about you guys, but like I haven't really had other jobs um, where I'm like good at. Um, so like, this is the only skill I have. So like, I need to, I need it to go well. <laughs> and it combines a broad combination of so many other skills. So it's not just research, but it's everything else that comes with it too. So yeah, for sure. Say. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the next question then would be, given that you pre previously studied stress, as we mentioned before, how did you transition from studying stress to pain? So I was studying stress and decision-making. So my uh, MRS was 
a bit on that do your levels of stress actually make you more intuitive or are you more are you less rational when you are under stress and thinking about that when i was looking for phds i was always kind of looking for decision making and then came this idea of pain and this is actually a question they asked me on my interview for the PhD. They asked me, is pain a decision? And hmm. it is this thing that as time went on, I realized that it is a decision of your brain, not your own hmm. decision, but it is, I see sometimes perception as a decision your brain makes based of all, on all the information it has. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was not so much a transition from stress to pain it was more a transition from decision making to perception and mm-hmm. at first i was very into the cognitive part of it but then it happens sometimes when you start working with something that's clinical you start to care a lot because obviously lots of people suffer with pain like there is i guess there is not a more clear example of suffering than pain mm-hmm. um and so you just kind of become a bit more and more clinical I believe every time you study something that's like pain so I did move away quite a lot from decision making mm-hmm. and kept it on pain but uh, yeah that that was kind of the transition of what makes us feel pain and thinking of pain as a decision of your brain so it was uh, it was more that you found a commonality between um, decision making and pain rather than between stress and pain. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, stress and pain are still very related or there is many hypotheses out there as to how stress might be influencing um, pain. And now I think that now it's a bit moving from the very stress kind of field to the more immune kind of field. But I still believe there is a link between stress. You know, I think and it's quite obvious that there is a link between the stress and the immune system. So mm-hmm. it's a still linked, just mm-hmm. it's a bit of a messy uh, link at the moment that I guess that's what we're working to figure out. I was just going to say that that's so fascinating. And I never heard of that be described the way that you did it, that pain is a decision, but not a decision that we make, but our brains make and we are our brains. So it's such an interesting <laughs> way to describe it. Um, I was going to say it's just not necessarily a conscious decision, but I do wonder if it's possible for you to consciously decide that you're not going to experience a certain level of pain and then to mediate your own pain through conscious decision. I was wondering what you think about that. I don't know. I think that with perception, right, it's it's kind of not, not something that's easy to control. It's a very unconscious thing. By the time you are aware of it, the decision has already been made. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that obviously, for example, with people with chronic pain and there, there is a line of treatment that is cognitive behavioral therapy or it's mindfulness. And at the end of the day, you are retraining your brain to make different decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's how you can consciously alter it more mm-hmm. than just saying, I'm not going to feel pain. Um, right. So I think that's a bit more of it obviously if you kind of make yourself believe that you're not going to feel pain then your expectation of pain will be lower which will exactly can lead to less pain Mm -hmm. but um i don't know how much you can actually control it 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting concept to me because I'm thinking about like in cognitive behavioral therapy, um, sort of the ideas that you're asking people to engage in this top-down regulation of your emotions and feelings. Um, you know, for example, if uh, someone is experiencing a traumatic life event, maybe through cognitive behavioral therapy, um, you learn to regulate your reaction to this traumatic event and you learn to sort of downregulate your feelings of pain, et cetera. Um, and I think that's very interesting. You know, I, I don't know to what extent can you really achieve that? Um, and also like through what mechanisms are you able to achieve that? But it, it's very interesting for sure. This top yeah. down versus bottom up process. Um, it's actually like giving people more control. I always think of it as something difficult because you think about it just something that happens on the spot. But when you give people training, mm -hmm. I mean, my lab right now in Manchester is working on uh, testing neurofeedback therapy, which is basically teaching people to control their brain waves to control their wow their alpha levels so it can be they can have more analgesic effect natural kind of analgesic effects mm -hmm. and that's that is giving that is in a way what you said of convincing yourself and making the decision conscious just mm -hmm. i think that's just in a different uh wording of it it's a different mm -hmm. way of looking at it. Hmm. It's really cool. That's fascinating. And this might be a tangent, but it sort of reminds me of the gut brain biome connection. And I don't oh, know yeah. if you look at that at all, because I know you both looked at stress before, and I don't know if that has anything to do with pain as well. Um, just mm. throwing it out there. <laughs> I'm not an expert on gut at all. <laughs> I know, I know there is a, I know um, there is some very interesting research and stuff like with depression. I know mm -hmm. uh, there is also research, I think, with it on pain, but it's not a topic that I'm very familiar with. Totally mm -hmm. fine. Yeah. Um, if anyone knows, comments. I mean, <laughs> send us an email. <laughs> I, I don't know about like the goal of, uh, or sorry, I don't know about the role of your microbiome. Um, in like pinging regulation, but I think it's like a whole other feel that is so increasingly like, you know, it's growing and it's thriving and it's so absolutely interesting. And I remember reading this about how um, I think it was like, you know, they're doing some like gut stuff with uh, rat models. And I did read this one study where they um, basically reared a couple rats in a vacuum environment where they basically did not form a regular gut microbiome. And when they put these rats out to socialize with the other rats, they found that um, they were just less social with the other rats. They didn't want to interact with them, et cetera. And then they recultured these baby rats with microbiome. Um, and they found that after reculturation, they were able to socialize with others, but they could not tell the difference between strangers versus friends. They could, they couldn't recognize who they had interacted with, uh, before versus who they are interacting with for the first time. So like, I'll probably, I'll link this paper in the podcast description if anyone's interested. I thought that was absolutely magnificent because they also brought up this evolutionary theory about how maybe the reason we have this microbiome is because uh, the bacteria in our guts want to socialize or like it's one of the reasons why we have the motivation to socialize. It's very That's interesting. So cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I think one thing I really like about where research is going, where I hope it's going, is that it is becoming more of a whole system approach to things. Mm -hmm. And that's something I actually always 
um, always kind of want to do because I think on research you have two types of people. I mean, you have more, but like two types, I count two types of people. You have the people who are very, this is my field, this is the specific area I like, and this is the specific area I'm an expert on. Mm-hmm. And then you have some people like me who I, I'm like a kid with a shiny toy and I see something shiny and I'm like, that's, that's super interesting. Is <laughs> see something else? And it's like, that's super interesting. Mm-hmm. And it may make me a little bit less good at doing something specific, but I think it is a strength when you try and link different things together. And I see more and more people like that in research, people who are saying, okay, um, you know, is it the immune system? Is it the brain? Is it, and this theory of why not both? They exactly. don't exist in a vacuum. I was mm-hmm. saying this morning on um, I'm on loads of fibromyalgia Facebook groups, just you know, to be in contact with mm-hmm. um, people and see what they thought. And they had read this paper that was about oh, fibromyalgia might be an autoimmune disease. And everyone in the comments was oh, that doesn't mean it's not on our brain. And um, I think that this idea, right, of it's just not one thing or the other. It can be both mm-hmm. things at the same time. It's something that I really agree with, with loads of um, human disorders um, mm-hmm. and syndromes. Right. And yeah. I think that, you know, it's, it's a very interesting way where research seems to be going that I am quite enjoying to see. Mm-hmm. And I think in many ways that would make you a better researcher, in my opinion, your ability to look at the human psychology from a more holistic viewpoint rather than just using, you know, one specific one specific functionality for each like organ or concept. Um, and I do think that's a better way to look at the brain as well, like the idea that each brain region or that you have specific neurocorrelates for one specific thing. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like if you talk about the amygdala you know, pop culture would say that, you know, it's the fear center or that the limbic system is the emotional regulation center. But I I guess what I'm saying is that they can play multiple roles um, and have multiple functions in regulation of multiple systems. And I think the idea that we can specify exactly which neurocorrelate is uh, for what, I don't know if that's necessarily the correct approach. A hundred percent. And like you mentioned, it's so so important now to have an interdisciplinary approach where you mm-hmm. collaborate with people from very different fields to answer a question because like you said our processes especially when we talk about the human body it's so complex and it oftentimes cannot be answered by this one person who has specific expertise in this one field so mm-hmm. the way that research is now going where it's broadening up and making sure that we look at environmental factors as well as biological neuro- neurological all of it mm-hmm. together and how it interacts is a good direction that we're going into. Yeah, I think maybe what we need to start doing as researchers is to stop thinking about like the exact technique or exact um, function of things that we're trying to specialize in, but rather to start thinking about what like broader conceptual question that we're trying to answer and then try to look at that question using the appropriate and, um, you know, skill set that we're good at. Um, And I will bring up that like our first episode um, speaker Darby she yeah. does examine parenthood from you know a, an endocrinological and also neuroscience and also behavioral and psychological perspectives and I think that's really cool yes that was incredible and 
seeing more and more researchers do that um, is great and very inspiring. And you don't have to be an expert in that one thing, but you can bring people who know about that certain thing together to work on it and answer those bigger concept questions. Um, you're actually going to need to do it eventually, even if I think that even if you are a very uh, specific expert on something and you find a way to kind of find a cure for something, I, th I think that even if you do that, then you're going to have to take a step farther because I would have no idea of, you know, if I make something work in the lab and well, actually I develop this diagnosing tool, then mm -hmm. what? How do I take it to patients? How do I make it into a policy how do i how do you make it into a product how do you give it to the nhs like how does mm -hmm. it even work and it's something that science does not only exist in our labs it then has to go out so you are going to have to work from people with the with people from the outside so that's yeah that's something collaboration i guess it's something that we should all work on a bit more like i am the first one who should do that a bit more uh, but yes yeah, it's kind of exciting to know that it's going to be a bit more multidisciplinary or I hope it leads in that direction. And yeah, not having it exist in this vacuum where it's just academia and uh, academics talking about it, but like you mentioned, having it be explainable and understandable by the general public and by people mm -hmm. who can then implement it into society because why are we doing this research if it's just going to stay in a journal online somewhere? Yeah, for sure. So just to like jump back into the career uh, topic, I was wondering if um, if I, uh, if you've ever faced any challenges um, in your academic career so far, um, especially have you faced any challenges that have made you reconsider having a career in academia? And if so, what made you decide to stay? I think um, the first advice I was given when I got to this lab, it was by the girl who was living at that time. She had just finished her PhD. And she told me, just remember, if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. And I just laughed it all when I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And then I didn't know a pandemic was included in that. If something can go wrong, it will go wrong. <laughs> but it was. And I mm. was out of the lab for one year. And I couldn't collect data and I had to think again. I had to replan and do as much as I could. And just, it was a stressing time because I could see time go by and not being able to collect data. And then I guess that there's this kind of directions they give you that change. So first it's like, oh, you write a review for this time and then we will find a way and it's like, oh no, rescope the research. And I think that that pressure from, I don't know what's going to happen and I need an extension and am I going to get it? I think that has been a stressing, a stressing thing to deal with. Um, and I don't think I've ever been to the point of, I'm giving up. It's, I've had points of, can I actually make this work? Um, but I think that then now I'm, an, I'm analyzing the data from my, you know, from my online survey and you can't get the data and that excitement part of it makes up for the stress, which I don't know if it's very good for my health, but it makes me want to stay. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah. I guess it's about the good ones. It's the, the good things are still way more than the bad things. But if anyone is thinking, am I going to go in academia? And um, if they're thinking, is it going to be easy? And the answer is no. I think that the advice Sarah gave me was a very good advice. Keep in mind, if something can go wrong, will go wrong. That mm -hmm. does not mean that the end result is going to be bad. Just be prepared for challenges, mm -hmm. which hopefully won't be a pandemic. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like in life, always having to be adaptable because any parts of your life can go wrong. Yeah, and maybe on that topic, um, we're, we're about uh, half an hour into the podcast, and maybe we can ask um, you to tell us a little bit about your PhD as well. So my PhD has changed directions a couple of times because of COVID, but um, the main thing we're doing at the moment is we're trying to create a diagnosing tool to be able to direct people to the best treatment for themselves. So we have an experimental paradigm um, that is accompanied by a Bayesian model. And basically, mm -hmm. after participants have completed this paradigm where they see different cues, they receive different uh, pain stimulation, we put their results into this paradigm and the, into this model. And this model gives us an unknown parameter for kind of results and a known parameter for um, it, where their pain is coming from. So it gives us how much of their pain is coming from the simulation, how much of their pain is coming from uh, the cues they're seeing, the uncertainty from a personal type of bias. Mm -hmm. And so we are now checking if these results are stable in time. So whether you actually go through the two go through tasks today or go through tasks in two weeks time are your results going to be the same because if it's the same and we suddenly find that someone has rated very um, low on the stimulation their pain basically does not really come from the stimulation they are receiving maybe that person could benefit from mindfulness hmm. they could benefit from something that is more of okay, let's make you less centered into the cues and the fears and more centered into what's actually happening. But if someone is rating very high on a stimulation, then maybe that person should not be led to mindfulness because they are already quite good at uh, gauging their body responses. So mm -hmm. it's a matter of trying to identify and cluster patients to be able to send them towards the best treatment for them because we have very limited amount of treatment um, for chronic pain. There is a huge population that has chronic pain. Um, and then the other part of it is a bit more into, okay, this is the treatments we have, but, and, and we're trying to take any, to take each person to the best treatment for each one of them, but we also need more treatments. And to, I think that in order to give better treatments, we also need to know where the pain is coming from. What makes someone more vulnerable to chronic pain than another person? Um, and so that's why we're looking into different environmental factors like trauma and whether that makes you more vulnerable to chronic pain um, and also certain psychological variables and whether those are related like attachment, is attachment related to your vulnerability to develop chronic pain? 
Mm-hmm. And so that's pretty much a summary of what we are doing for this project. So would it be correct to say that a lot of people are being uh, over-treated or under-treated for the pain that they have and that the tool you're trying to develop would allow people to receive more accurate treatment for uh, that corresponds to their actual pain levels? I think that some people are over-treated and under-treated. Um, I think that it's a matter of what's best for you, right? You can, if, if you have a cold and they give you an antihistamine, it's not going, you know, it's not going to fix it. Um, right. That's what you should give someone if they have an allergy. And mm-hmm. it's just trying to find. So if you go with symptoms of cold and they give you an antihistamine, it doesn't work. And then like they go, it just goes away on its own. Or, you know, you have some type of infection, they give you an antihistamine, it does not work. So then they will give you antibiotics. Okay, that mm-hmm. works. But you've had to be for a long time with an infection, which could make it be worst. Um, so if we can straight away know like, okay, this person has an infection, this person has an allergy, which treatment is best for them? It saves, well, I guess for policymakers, which is an important part, it saves money, but it also saves suffering for people, which is for me the most important part of it. Mm-hmm. So would it be accurate to say that you're more interested in the psychosomatic element of pain, as opposed to, for example, like someone breaking a leg or being in a car crash? Yeah, I think that's obviously I come from psychology and um, that's like, I I tend to be a bit artisan to say it's always a psychosomatic, it, is, it does come from, you know, expectations and stuff which I study, but I tend to feel a bit uncomfortable when I say it because I know that loads of patients that suffer chronic pain, they, they just get this thing from lots of doctors and lots of people telling them it's just in their heads. Hmm. Um, so that's why I always feel a bit uncomfortable saying psychosomatic, it's more, um, you know, characteristics that make your brain more sensitive to pain, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, it's, it's not on their mind. They are really in pain and I try to be as respectful as I can to that, yeah. you know, um, that kind of stigma they have to live with, mm-hmm. I think, which I think is very, very, um, damaging for patients and it brings no good. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think like there's already a lot of very interesting evidence for it um, in, you know, like the past few decades, especially I'm thinking about uh, Naomi Eisenberger from UCLA, you know, her finding that there's this huge overlap between your physical and social pain coming from like social rejections that activates the same neural circuits that are activated during the experience of physical pain. Um, like when we say psychosomatic, I think a lot of people might think this means lesser pain or pain that is more manageable, but that's definitely not true. And we have the, like, I think we're gathering or we might already have the evidence to support um, the idea that it can just be as painful. Yeah. And psychosomatic does not mean either that there is not a physical cause because the psychological um, causes also have a physical root. We are just not as good at picking them. We're not as good at seeing them because we don't have tools because the research is not there yet. But when you're feeling pain and, you know, your pain comes from psychosomatic factors or that doesn't mean that your body is not altered and could be altered in the same way or worse than someone who has just broken a leg. I, I'm, I think it's something I 
have said to a few patients, um, fibromyalgia patients actually, is that, uh, you know, because they are always blamed sometimes, not by every doctor, but some people tend to tend to blame them for, you know, it's kind of in your mind or it's not as important. Mm-hmm. And I tend to tell them that um, I apologize in the name of the medical community and scientific community because it's not their fault. It's our fault. We have been enabled to find what's happening to them and we have been enabled to discover how to treat them Mm -hmm. and so it's our fault not their fault just because we think that there might be some psychosomatic uh, reasons associated or that's one of the hypotheses it does not make their pain or their disorder less real or less based on their bodies Mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned trauma and uh, how that could also be connected to chronic pain. So I was wondering if you've done any research with that or if um, that's something that's still in development or what future directions you think researchers should take with trauma and looking at pain and chronic pain as well. So we have just done a survey and we've asked people about their traumatic experiences. Um, And we found that the rate, like I've still not done the statistical analysis to compare them, but I found that from my sample, um, more than 30% have received sexual abuse of from my sample of 125 people. Sorry, did you say that most of the participants did? So out of the 100? Out of 125, mm-hmm. um, around 30% lived through some type of sexual oh. abuse 35 percent that's a lot that's a that's lot a very significant amount and i'm sure and it was high with emotional business stuff um, i'm sure it's i'm pretty sure it, it is significant but i still right. haven't done the analysis but that's the raw data Right, right. This is scary. It took me like I, I was looking at the graph for a while, being like, I expected some. You always expect some type of effect when you do this uh, type of questionnaire, right? But I was looking at the data and thinking, like, this is just crazy. Yeah, it's so so sad just seeing it on the screen. And so you mentioned then the sexual trauma. Are there other forms of trauma that you also measure? Um. So we measured emotional abuse, physical abuse sexual abuse okay um emotional abuse is like 60 percent pretty Oof. high wow um, and physical abuse and sexual abuse were quite similar so 30 percent 35 percent yeah wow yeah. i wanted to also ask you if you've ever considered looking at racial trauma with chronic pain at what trauma racial so yeah racial backgrounds yeah so for example there is some research that has been done in which um they found that people from uh, minorities are more likely to develop certain disorders and you know there is always this argument of i don't know whatever they have but i guess that racial trauma or someone who undergoes racism through their entire life they are uh, subjected to more stress they are subjected to which is at the end they would we think might be causing the uh, physiological changes Mm -hmm. so 
Um, yeah, it could be one of the, I think it's, it's not something I've looked at um, at the moment, uh, but I know there is some research done on it. And one, you know, people from lower socioeconomic status tend to be more vulnerable too. Mm-hmm. Um, and is this something that I think could be linked through stress? Mm-hmm. But it's not, um, it's not something I've personally looked into. Isn't that so like, I mean, it's, it's definitely screwed up, but it's also very like interesting from a clinical perspective that it seems like the common um, trait between stress and pain is people's demographic background, right? Or like the, the abuse that they've received um, in the past. Yeah, I think, um, I think it could be one of the factors that's influencing it, definitely. Um, I guess that it is, you know, it is difficult to know because obviously when we study chronic pain, when we study something like fibromyalgia, it kind of like one side fits all. Oh, you have the symptoms, then you have this. And we might be looking at disorders that come from different places. Um, right. Because, you know, to carry on with the example before, it's, you know, you can be sneezing because you have an allergy or because you have a cold and the treatment should not be the same and the cause is not the same. Mm-hmm. But when you don't really know what the cause is and you only have the symptoms, you diagnose people based on the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that sense, I think it's a bit of a messy area to look at causes because the causes of what are you looking at exactly? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that socioeconomic status is stress, um, trauma, you know, you, you can have trauma without having a low socioeconomic status. You can go through, you know, rape. You can go through um, a car accident. You can have a hurricane, but um, it seems to yeah, be one of the factors, unfortunately. Yeah, and I guess this is consistent with, um, like, what I found in my last experiment as well, where I found that um, people who scored pretty high on their personal sense of power and subjective social status um, also scored relatively high on the personal distress subscale of the interpersonal reactivity index or IRI. Um, so I, I think that's pretty interesting. Like, I think the evidence is consistent with this hypothesis that um, coming from lower socioeconomic status or being more disadvantaged also means that you might be um, more at risk for develop, developing psychosomatic symptoms later in life. Yeah, I think... I think we know, right, that, that I don't think anyone will question that when you are not privileged, your life is just harder. And that's mm-hmm. going to lead to more stress. And when you're very privileged, your life is just easier. Um, and that has consequences in your body. Right. Yeah, so definitely. And you're kind of just expected to live as though you have no external life stressors or um, any other uh, causes that may be uh, leading you to feel more stress and, and which lead to physical manifestations in the body that you can't control. But if you are in an underprivileged position, you kind of are just told that to deal with the pain and to move on mm-hmm. um, and to keep being a functioning member of society um, for, for capitalism's sake and all of that. But that's a whole other tangent. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, it's 
it's kind of um this is a personal opinion um but i do believe that uh, social issues are very linked with what we study in science and um, um, i i do think for example i look at people with fibromyalgia and i see a majority of women and i think if this is happening if this had been something that affects in its majority to men uh would we be in a better position to know what's happening i think so there will be no more funding for it i think yes 100 percent and just with, without going into what currently is funded and it's not funded because i'm obviously being funded to study this but i think historically also um right fibromyalgia women were at a time i did our view um on causes of pain models that predict pain and there is this there was this time when they were considered to be patients of hysteria by Freud yes and it was just they were just like hysteric women and it no <laughs> no yes. they're not um, and it's it's for for a very long time you have that image it's kind of going to screw up the whole research line because we're just saying that these are crazy women so you just don't need to invest on this 100%. Um, and apart from the sexism against the personal opinion but apart from sexism i think it's also um economical reasons uh women uh, economically kind of join the job market later in general um mm-hmm. and so for a while we were not it was not really a problem to have to you know their husbands would take care of them financially so it was not an issue for our economical system that we had people who could not work or who had some type of um chronic disorder so i do yeah i do think that all of these things play into what we research and what has been researched Mm -hmm. historically so this is just a personal pain obviously but one one that I completely I agree with. Yeah, I think yeah. we all agree with that assessment. Like yeah. the idea of like, oh, if your wife is in pain from like the 50s, but she doesn't have a broken leg and you just shrug it off and you say, honey, you're fine. Go bake me an apple pie. <laughs> right. I mean, even now it's it's uh, shaping how I think women in pain are vastly like discredit discredited in professional situations and personal situations even i mean when you talk about having mm-hmm. cramps from your period or even more severe symptoms that's not even taken seriously you're just expected to continue about your day when a lot of people it can be very impairing but there's nothing in the system that we live in right now that's built for women to um sustain those kinds of pains or those kinds of natural processes that every woman, half of the population goes through. And that's not even discussed. Not socially acceptable. Yes, yes. We're socialized even from a young age. Like I remember in PE classes, if you had cramps, you'd have to make up some other excuse to get out of being in a sports class because it hurt so much. And it wasn't acceptable for you to say that you had cramps or that you were experiencing something very painful. So yeah, I just remember it being always discredited. I mean, there's also the aspect where like, if you share with, um, especially men that you're on your period, I feel like their first response is often like, oh, then I'll take everything you say at like half a cent value because you are not rational right now. I I think like part of the issue is also where we've got so many 
fires of sexism to put out that like period is low on like the priority list you know what I mean like we're still fighting for like I don't know like paid maternity leave especially in the U.S. it's just like so absolutely horrible over there we're still fighting for like the fact that people should understand if a woman just pushed a freaking human baby out of her that she should deserve to get paid and just take some bed rest literally yes and even like the whole process of being in labor to begin with so many women especially women of color are not believed when there's mm-hmm. when they tell doctors that they're in pain and then it just completely goes unnoticed and then that often causes a lot of um serious issues in the future or even death a lot of the times it leads to death and i think there's a disproportionate rate of oh, yeah. women dying um during while giving birth and we're just supposed to say like oh yeah that's okay let's just keep having babies and uh (laughs) keeping society going when that's not even being addressed um and all these research studies are all based on men's pain tolerance or men's level of pain hopefully we will slowly change it yes (laughs) that is the attitude our generation yeah exactly (laughs) um so there's one question actually that we can ask now. So are you hoping to pursue then a postdoc or a career in academia in the future? Or are you hoping more to go towards industry, public policy? I would really um, like to carry on in academia. I really like this job. It's quite, um, it, it's something that gets you hooked. It's something I really enjoy. And I really like teaching too. So I think it's um, something I would like to carry on doing and if this was not an option I don't know I think I am quite invested in healthcare at the moment I'm quite invested in trying to make healthcare better whether that's from research or whether that's from another path I think that's where I want my career to go Hmm. that's comforting to know because I know a lot of people sometimes that have a negative perception of academia, but um, it's nice to know that it is fulfilling and that it is something that uh, people are want to pursue regardless of the, the hurdles that you may have to jump over, but that's what we hope to change. And now with the new generation, hopefully things can be different and we can sort of tear down some of these walls and break those glass ceilings yeah. and all of that. Hopefully it's, hopefully it's not gonna just be like us being so, you know, hot-blooded and trying to break the glass ceiling and then none of us actually make it through the glass ceiling (laughs) (laughs) we're all just like up there so close we just splatter against the glass ceiling (laughs) it's just a mess (laughs) but i was thinking you know if uh anyone has more questions about ariane uh, for example if you have any questions about like exactly what type of experiments that she's running to study her um main question um please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. We can relay any questions that you have to our speaker and then get back to you. And do you have a Twitter? I do. I never use it, but it's there. Okay. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even remember the name, but I'll give it to you. We'll I'll link it in. Out. Perfect. We'll link it in the episode below. And if there's any other way that you'd like to, uh, that you'd like to uh, provide us with a way for people to communicate with you, we can also provide that as well. Um, but yeah, any last minute thoughts that you would like to give? It was great to talk to you. It was really fun, really. We went on a lot of tangents, but but it, that's yeah. my thing. That's, <laughs> that's my thing <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, our style. It would not be our podcast without a feminist rant thrown in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <to it>. yeah. <laughs> 
So thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to seeing all that you do in the future. Very fascinating work.